0: Did you say to Nick Chaven, I had to do it, it was her or me? No. What motivated you to contact Mr. Jarecki in the first place?
1: I hated being rejected everywhere. I had this idea. And if I could get my correct story out there, then I would be acceptable everywhere.
0: You know, now that was a mistake, don't you?
1: That was a very, very, very big mistake. If I'd been offered the right deal, I would have confessed to murdering Susan Berman, to murdering Kathy Durst, to murdering John Lennon, to murdering Jack Kennedy, to murdering Morris Black, and to murdering anybody else whose name I could think of.
2: This is my favorite part of the whole trial so far. (laughs)
3: Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder.
4: On Tuesday, August 17th, Dick DeGarren concluded his direct examination of Robert Durst, and Deputy DA John Lewin began his cross-examination. Later this week, we will delve into the mesmerizing face-off between John Lewin and Robert Durst, But today, we will focus on the final stages of DeGarren's direct examination.
3: In this episode, we're going to examine the testimony that Robert Durst gave on Monday afternoon and Tuesday morning, the end of his fourth day and the start of his fifth day on the stand, which essentially represent his last opportunity to present his side of the story to the jury without a filter.
4: That's coming up after the break.
3: As we reported in our last episode, DeGuerin spent Monday morning probing Durst on his actions on December 23, 2000, the day he claims to have found Susan Berman's body. After he concluded that crucial chapter of questioning Durst by prompting the defendant to affirm that he had no motive to kill his best friend, DeGarren next asked Durst a question that goes to the heart of the prosecution's case.
0: Was Susan blackmailing you?
1: No.
3: Did
0: Susan ever threaten to blackmail you? No. Had Susan told you that uh, the police might be talking to her or she might be talking to the police? Yes. When did she tell you that?
1: But she was always telling me that somebody had telephoned her and wanted to interview her. Whether it was a detective or an investigator or a reporter or something, Susan always had stuff had stuff to say,
4: and I had stopped taking it seriously years
1: before that.
4: DeGuerin then sought to counter the prosecution's allegation that Durst had Susan Berman place a call to the dean of Albert Einstein College of Medicine as Kathy Durst by asking Durst about when he spoke to Berman in the days following Kathy's disappearance.
0: When Kathy disappeared, Susan became your spokesperson for a while after that. Is that right? Correct. But did you have any contact with her um, From January the thirty first until during the week after Kathy disappeared. In other words, before Kathy called the dean. Did you have any contact with Susan before that?
1: My first contact with Susan was on Wednesday, February third.
0: So did was there anything that Susan had to blackmail you with.
1: No.
3: DeGarren then asked Durst about the occasions when he assisted Susan financially, presumably to demonstrate that Durst's beneficence to Susan was unrelated to any concern he may have had about Westchester DA Janine Pirro's 2000 decision to reopen the investigation into Kathy Durst's disappearance.
0: Bob, um, I started to ask you about um, other monies that you had uh, given to Susan over the years, and you had started to talk about when Paul uh, Kaufman uh, was and Susan were planning on the musical. Uh, what about you? You said that was a, that was the one disagreement you had about money. Tell us about that.
1: Paul Kaufman said that he wanted me to put up quote-unquote seedling money, 10% of the total budget. That was to give Paul Kaufman the opportunity to raise the rest of the money. Paul Kaufman explained to me that the total budget was $5 million and that he wanted me to put up $500,000. I told him he was out of his mind, and I would give him $25,000. He said that's a very small amount. And Susan sort of gotten in the middle of it all.
0: When was that?
1: In New York.
0: No, that's where. When was it?
1: 1998,
4: I guess. Curiously. Paul Kaufman and Susan Berman attempted to mount the musical about the Dreyfus affair in the early 1990s.
3: DeGarren then moved on to Durst's interactions with Morris Black in Galveston. His testimony remained largely consistent with his earlier versions of the story.
0: Was there an occasion in which you came to the apartment in Galveston and found that Morris Black was in the apartment?
1: Yeah.
0: Alright, I want to go to that first incident uh, uh, and I want you to explain to us what happened.
1: I was urinating in the bathroom and I heard a shot. I th- assumed the shot, the noise came from outside. But I wasn't sure. When I got back into the When I got into the living room, Morris Black was standing there with the gun pointing at a letter that was thumbtacked or scotch-taped up on the wall. The letter was an eviction notice from the landlord man, Lord. And Morris said, I shot the eviction notice.
0: Inside the gun inside your apartment?
1: Yes.
0: Was there another occasion when Morris Black shot the gun in the apartment?
1: Yes.
0: Would you explain to the jury what happened that time?
1: About a week after the first time. I had done something in Houston and came back. And when I got back, Morris was in the apartment and he was showing me how he he could take the gun apart. I thought I did not want him to take the gun apart. that he should put it back together. So he put it back together, and then to show me that he had put it back together correctly, he shot it at a, a box that was in the kitchen.
4: However, there was one new detail that Durst revealed about his friendship with Morris Black.
0: So, in the late summer and fall of 2001 leading up to the end of September, were you openly living as Bob Durst in Galveston?
1: When I was in Galveston, yes.
0: And uh, Morris Black knew that you were Bob Durst.
1: He had known I was Bob Durst for a long time.
0: When was the first time he saw you as Bob Durst? And not as Dorothy Siner was the witch. Sometime
1: in March or April.
0: All right. Did he make any remarks about that?
1: I told him that I sometimes wore a disguise as a woman because I just did not want to be me. And he said he went through that a while ago.
0: In other words, not wanting to be you, not wanting to be Bob Durst. Did you explain to him why you didn't want to be Bob Durst?
4: Primarily because of Janine Pirro. Quote, primarily because of Janine Pirro, end quote.
3: This is a significant admission by Durst. The prosecution has alleged that Durst killed Morris Black because he was concerned that, as Durst was planning to leave Galveston, Black would alert the authorities to Durst's whereabouts. The defenses indicated that Durst had no reason to fear Black because they were friends and because there is no evidence that Black knew about Durst's troubles in Westchester County. Well, now there is evidence offered by Durst himself that Morris Black knew not just what those troubles were, but the name of Durst's chief antagonist at the time.
4: While Durst's testimony about how he came to shoot Morris Black remained consistent, there was a moment during DeGarren's direct examination of Durst that underscored some of the absurd aspects of the defense team's approach to this trial.
2: Any objection? No. No. And, I would just, I don't know if this will work. I'm just... He can adopt the, the video. You no, know, I'm just kind
6: of potentially suggesting this as well. Potentially... If Mr. Chesnoff wants to serve as Mr. Durst, and Mr. Durst is directing Mr. Chesnoff, then at least we have... My concern is just that the record um, we've got Bob sitting down, it's it's problematic. I
2: don't know the record so is important, but the jurors' view is more important than the record. I, the record is also important, but these are the decision makers here. So keep that in mind. Yes? I would have
6: look. to talk to my agent. Right, okay. If, if I might have
0: Mr. Chesnoff play the part of Mr. Black, and I will uh, put my hand on
2: the gun as if I were Mr. Durst. Okay, uh, okay. you can do that. And uh, Mr. Durst can uh, indicate whether or not this is uh, correct. Which he Can we have a
6: stipulation, Dick, just for the record that um, He's taller than I
0: am. With, yeah, well, I'll you
6: know, not, right. not only is he taller than you are, but that but that the difference in height between Mr. Chesnoff and yourself is greater than the difference in height between Mr. Black and Mr. Durst. I think Mr. Black and Mr. Durst were about the same size. Correct. Yeah. So will you stipulate <laughs> to that? <laughs> <laughs> Which
2: stipulation are we on now? Number 273? <laughs> on the table. Do your best, gentlemen. Well, my confidence, Chesnoff, be behind me with a gun. Why, uh, perhaps over here near our California flag. Watch that, it. that way, Mr. Durst can see close up, and uh, jurors can see it. Yeah, If you'll just,
0: if direct, Mr. Chesnoff, and we'll we'll do it on the screen also, if you will, uh, I'm I'll be coming from behind you and
2: you're starting to stand up, have your hand on the gun, and I'll grab the gun like this. All right, so we'll slow down here, and so in this uh, in this version, Mr. Chesnoff has, is standing up, he's uh, holding the firearm with his right hand, I can't see where it, if his finger is near the trigger. My well, finger is on the trigger. Finger on the trigger, and Mr. Uh, Mr. DeGaren has placed his left arm on the back of Mr. Chesnoff's shoulder. He's grasping the firearm. A little bit different from the way Mr. Durst described it. Here, he's got the thumb over the the uh, barrel, we had, we had the and pass. then his hand is over the, fr- the, the, his four fingers of his right hand are over the front of the firearm, the thumb is over the top of the firearm in this example. That's right. You know, the only issue we've got is is,
6: it's an interesting demonstration, but Mr. Durst isn't involved in.
2: No, we're going to ask Mr. Durst if that that looks right or not. Oh, okay. Does so this look, look right, Bob?
1: That looks right to me. All
2: right, and then you wrestled and fell backwards. Uh, Mr. Chesnoff uh, was was uh, was falling. Falling backwards. I might not get up though. <laughs> you need to look
6: toward me. Okay. okay, and we, so what, what happens next?
1: The gun went off. What?
0: The oh. gun went off. So, where were you and where was Morris Black when the gun went off?
1: Crying on the floor of the kitchen. So you fell
0: backwards?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mr. Chesnoff has done his best Hollywood falling <laughs> <laughs> back. Like still grasping the gun, finger what on the trigger. I could get down. Get down. <laughs> and uh, we'll stipulate that Mr. DeGarenne uh, got got down with him. The gun? <laughs> then he won't actually have to do it. Where's the television camera for <laughs> you? is my favorite part of the whole trial so far. <laughs> I don't know who to root for here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Mr. Lewin, why don't you describe it? I can't see it. So we've got we've got Mr. Aaron playing um, Mr.
6: Black. No, oh. no. No, Bob. I'm sorry. Bob is on the right side. And yeah. they are they are both. Why don't I describe it? I'm not sure that I want to. I'm
0: glad you have a mascot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. Uh, We're both on the floor, my left elbow's on the floor, my right hand's on the gun, your right hand, uh, Bob Burris's right hand is on the gun, uh, on the top of the gun, Mars Black has got his finger on the trigger, is this when the gun goes off? Bob? Yes! Yes. I've
6: got plenty of help.
3: In case it wasn't clear, that was Deputy District Attorney John Lewin suggesting to the defense that they act out the shooting of Morris Black and the defense team taking up Lewin's suggestion.
5: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. At the
4: end of the day on Monday, DeGarren asked Durst about his friend Nick Chavin. Chavin, whose 2017 conditional witness examination was played for the jury a few weeks ago, testified that he had dinner with Durst in 2014, and that immediately after dinner, he asked Durst about Susan Berman. According to Chavin, Durst replied, quote, I had to, it was her or me, end quote. The defense sought to use Durst's testimony to try to undermine Chavin's credibility, first by trying to establish doubt as to how close Durst and Chavin were.
0: I want to change the subject for a moment and talk about Nick Chaven. When did you first meet Nick Chavin?
1: Susan Berman introduced me to him in 1980. Where? Susan Merman called me at the office and said a friend of hers from San Francisco, a musician, was in town, and he had free tickets to a Doobie Brothers concert and that I should go to a certain street corner at six o'clock or whatever. And there would be a bus there with Doobie Brothers on the front of it. And my name would be on a list.
0: So, did you go to the Doobie Brothers concert?
1: I did. Susan said, This is Nick Shaven. And Nick Shaven offered me a joint.
0: We're just right out of the box, uh, first thing?
1: It was already lit.
0: <laughs> okay. Was it good?
1: I don't remember.
0: Maybe that maybe it was good. All right, what happened from there? Did you develop a friendship with Nick Chaven? Yes, I did. So, in the years that followed, um, did Nick maintain business with uh, the Durst organization? Yes. Yeah. In fact, there even up. Go ahead.
1: There was not much business. But he stayed friendly with both me and David. And he got to be pretty friendly with my father Seymour.
0: Well, I guess the only way to ask it is was that a valuable contact for Nick to have that relationship with yeah. with the Durst organization?
1: That's what Nick said.
0: Was there a period of time when you didn't see Nick Chavin for several years?
1: Nineteen. 19- 92 until
0: 2014. Okay, so from 1992 to 2014, did you have any contact whatsoever with Nick Chavin? No. When did Nick Chavin get married?
1: 1988.
0: Where did he get married?
1: Las Vegas.
0: Did you go to his wedding?
1: I was a cold best man.
0: Who was the other best man?
1: Kiki Friedman.
0: Was Susan there? Susan was there. What about Susan's father? I don't mean Susan's father. I'm sorry. Uh, Nick's father.
1: Yes, Nick's father, Mr. Chavin, was there.
0: Was there something that happened there that strained your relationship with Nick Chavin? you understand the question? And just
1: I understand the question.
0: Without answering what it was, just was there such a thing?
1: The answer is yes.
0: And did it involve Susan Berman and Nick and Nick's father? It did. In that dispute, whose side did you take?
1: Susan Berman.
0: Did that cause some bad blood between you and Nick? It did. So how long after that was it when you next saw Nick Chavins?
1: In oh, 1988, we continued to be friendly, but we were not very good friends.
0: Was it uh, partly because of what had happened in Las Vegas with Susan and his father?
1: Primarily what happened in Las Vegas, but also I think the friendship was winding down anyway.
3: On Tuesday morning, DeGuerrin specifically asked Durst about Nick Chavin's testimony. Did you say
0: to Nick Chavin, I had to do it, it was her or me? No. All right, Mr. Lewin's question was, he turned to you and he said it was either Susan or me, and, and Nick breaks in and says, yeah, no, that didn't happen. She told me she, that she said it, and I said, that didn't happen. She said you told me it did. I said no I didn't and it didn't happen. Was he telling the truth there? Do you understand the question? No. When Nick said that didn't happen, you saying it was either Susan or me. When Nick said that didn't happen, was he telling the truth there?
1: It didn't. It didn't. It didn't happen. Yes, he was telling the truth.
0: Did you ever tell Terry at any point in time, ever, that at any point in time Bob told you words to the effect of, quote, it was either Susan or me? Mr. Chavin's answer, no. You see that? Yes. Did you ever tell Nick Chavin it was either her or me? No. So at this point, is Nick Chavin telling the truth?
1: Chavin says he did not tell Terry and I said it was her or me that Chavin is telling the truth.
0: Mr. Lewin asks, are the way Bob speaks is a Bobism gonna be something like, quote, yeah, it was either her or me, end quote, Mr. Chavin. That does not sound at all like Bob. Is he telling the truth there?
4: Yes. Yeah. After covering Nick Chaven, DeGarren moved on to ask Durst about his relationship with filmmaker Andrew Jarecki and his involvement in the Jinx docu-series.
0: What motivated you to contact Mr. Jarecki in the first place?
1: I hated being rejected everywhere. I was rejected from co-ops in New York City, condominiums, in Houston and in Los Angeles, I was rejected by six condominiums. In when? In Los Angeles, LACMA has something called, or what are they called? LACMA gives large donors opportunity to serve on boards and recommend that LACMA purchase various artworks, councils. That's what they're called. LACMA has councils.
0: Is that a charity?
1: Oh, well, LACMA is Los Angeles County Museum of Art.
0: And is that a charitable organization that takes donations?
1: It's non-profit, yes. Yeah.
0: Did you uh, try to make a uh, donation?
1: Yes. What happened? I was asked to choose a council that I wanted to be on and I chose something and then I got a telephone call from whoever it was that ran that specific council that three of their members had threatened to quit if they accepted Robert Durst as a member of the council and this person said that they would like to keep my donation but that I should make it anonymously. From
0: all these things did you feel rejection?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So what did you want to do about it?
1: I had idea that if I could get my correct story out there, that I would be acceptable everywhere.
0: Were you using any drugs during those interviews? Yes. What were you using? Do you understand the question?
1: I understand and I'm trying to remember crystal meth, meth, whatever, Where's crystal meth.
0: What what effect does that have on you, or well, what did it have on you?
1: It speeds you up.
0: What was your hope that Mr. Jarecki would do with the interviews?
1: I was expecting him to come up with a show that he would find one of the interview programs to carry.
0: Were you expecting the interviews to be favorable to you? Yes. You know now that was a mistake, don't you?
1: That was a very, very, very big mistake.
0: Toward the end of the second round of interviews, Mr. Jarecki confronts you with two envelopes addressed to Susan Berman and with the cadaver note, you recall that? Yes. He asked you whether you wrote the cadaver note and you said no, you recall that? Yes. When that happened, did you realize um, that it was pretty obvious that the handwriting was the same? Yes. At one point you say something to the effect, there it is, you're caught. You say that to yourself. You say it out loud. First, have you spoken out loud to yourself?
1: I've been talking to myself since I was a little boy.
0: Do you realize that you're doing it?
1: Usually I realize I'm doing it, but there are times when I don't realize I'm doing it. It seems I talk to myself about my thoughts, so some of what I'm thinking I do not state out loud.
0: When you said, there it is, you're caught, what did you mean?
1: I was talking about being caught writing the cadaver note.
0: Even though you had denied it for years? Yes. Later, uh, in the recording of your talking to yourself, you also said, kill them all, of course. Yes. What did you mean by that?
1: What I did not say out loud, or perhaps I said very softly, they'll all think I killed them all, of
4: course. Durst did not address the meaning of his utterance, quote, there it is, you're caught, end quote.
3: DeGarren, in one of his last areas of questioning, asked Durst about his actions following the airing of the fifth episode of The Jinx and his experience in the New Orleans Parish Prison.
0: All right. <clears throat> Let's go forward. Uh, did you... Watched the first episodes of All Good, uh, excuse me, of The Jinx?
1: Yes, I subscribed to HBO specifically to watch it.
0: Where were you when you watched it?
1: In Houston, Texas.
0: And where did you live in Houston?
1: 2520 Robin Hood Street.
0: And. <laughs> Is that a, a, a condominium that you owned and still own?
1: Yes.
0: By the time the fifth segment came out, what was your realization about what this program was going to be?
1: Well, long before the fifth segment, fifth segment, convinced me that I was going to be arrested, And that I should go into hiding.
0: So what did you decide to do?
1: What did I do? I went to New Orleans. I registered under a phony name in a hotel. A Marriott something or other.
0: The JW Marriott? Sure. Did you take a gun with you? I did. What were you going to do with the gun?
1: I was going to to shoot myself.
0: It's in evidence here. Uh, There was a a revolver that had one chamber that had a fired shell in it. Did you fire that shell?
1: Yes, when my friend delivered to me a car and the gun. I took the gun out onto my balcony at twenty-five twenty-five, and I shot it. Why? To make sure it worked.
0: Then you're a, you got to New Orleans, the JW Marriott, perhaps Wednesday. That be that would be the Wednesday of the week preceding the final segment to be shown on Sunday, correct?
1: Correct.
0: What did you do while you were in New Orleans?
1: I ate.
0: There was a a map, a road map that was found. It's in evidence. It's a map of the Southeastern United States and it also has in the lower right-hand corner an outline of Cuba. Were you planning to go to Cuba? No. Had you told people that you might go to Cuba? No. Did you tell Andrew Jarecki that you might go to Cuba? No. Do you have any recollection even whether it was a, as a joke or not of saying that you might go to Cuba?
1: I never told anybody seriously or as a joke that I might go to Cuba.
0: So when you were confronted in the lobby of the. J.W. Marriott by two FBI agents, a very large man and a a woman FBI agent, were you put under arrest?
1: Well, there was a dispute about that. Well, I said, they put me under arrest. They said, we did not put you under arrest. I said, they handcuffed me to a table. They said we did handcuff him to a table, but he was not under arrest.
0: And did you go to the um, Orleans Parish Prison, the jail, later that day?
1: In the evening, yes.
0: Would you describe briefly the conditions of the Orleans Parish Prison that night?
1: I was directed to a cell, they asked to take off my clothes, which I did. And then the guard started to walk away and I hollered after him, aren't you going to give me clothes? And he said, no, Durst, you're not going to need clothes because we are going to throw away the key.
0: So were you nude, naked?
1: Yeah. What,
0: was the, what, what were the conditions of your cell?
1: There was nothing in it. There were two metal bunk beds, one over the other. There was a sink toilet. There was not even a mattress on one of the bunks. No, there was nothing.
0: Was there a blanket or anything to cover yourself with?
1: There was nothing.
0: What was the temperature?
1: I was cold.
0: What's the next thing that happened?
1: Well, I curled up on one of the bunk beds. I must have been very tired because I don't remember falling asleep and I don't remember ever waking up until the morning when I heard my last name shouting.
0: And what happened next?
1: A guard said, you have a legal visit. Put on these clothes.
0: Well, what, what did you think was a legal visit?
1: I had no idea. I mean, Steve Brabenowicz was in New York, so he couldn't possibly be there. I figured he might have been able to contact you, but it was early in the morning, so I couldn't see how you could possibly be there, so I just had no idea.
0: Were you hopeful that it was someone who was representing you? Yes. So what happened next?
1: I was escorted to a room with a long table and I think four or five men in suits, one of whom was John Lewin.
0: What did you think was happening then, Bob?
1: Well, I have to back up a little bit. Louisiana is known for having the worst prison system in the country. Louisiana State Penitentiary, Angola, every year, every year is rated either the worst, most dangerous prison or one of the worst, most dangerous prisons and I thought to myself, these guys are from Los Angeles. I want to do a plea bargain with these guys and get out of Louisiana.
0: Were you afraid?
1: Very much so.
0: What were you afraid of?
1: I was afraid of all the bad things that are known for happening in out of control prisons.
0: When you were arrested uh, in Louisiana, in your hotel, you had a gun, you had money, you had marijuana. Were you afraid of going to prison in Louisiana? Yes. Yeah. Had you been using the marijuana uh, the day before?
1: The day before and the day of.
0: Oh. The day of your arrest, but. Of course you didn't have any with you in, in, the, in the jail, but when was the last marijuana you used that Saturday afternoon?
1: Yes, I smoked marijuana before having lunch.
0: So um, when Mr. Lewin questioned you for several hours, almost three hours, what was going through your mind
1: and I should do a plea bargain with these people.
0: What kind of plea bargain?
1: Any kind of plea bargain that would get me out of Louisiana.
0: Did you mean a plea bargain to the murder of Susan Berman?
1: If I'd been offered the right deal, I would have confessed to murdering Susan Berman to murdering Kathy Durst. To murdering John Lennon, to murdering Jack Kennedy, to murdering Morris Black, and to murdering anybody else whose name I could think of. Why? Well, I'd been, I guess, diagnosed by two medical clinics at the end of 2014 with having a life expectancy of less than five years. In Galveston, when I was tried for murder, it took two years to to go to the end of the trial. I figured in Los Angeles, it would take at least two years. So that left me less than three years outside of prison if I was acquitted which would seem to me questionable. So any kind of plea bargain that would get me into a decent prison system. California is known for treating its inmates like human beings. I figured I'd be happy spend these last five years in the California
0: prison system. Even if you weren't guilty of killing Susan Berman or the disappearance of Kathy or the killing of Morris Black or John Lennon or John F. Kennedy or whoever else you would have pled guilty to?
3: Yes. Can you explain that to the jury?
1: No, I did explain it.
3: Joining us now is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Hey, thank you. So what we're doing today is we're focused on the latter part of Dick DeGarren's questioning of Bob. Charlie, what were your impressions of the latter part of DeGarren's questioning of Bob?
7: I felt like he was reprising his role in Galveston, its territory he's very familiar with. And one of the interesting things to think about is in Bob's telling, he went out there with Morris Black, this 71-year-old cantankerous merchant seaman, and was shooting the guns. And he quickly realized that Morris wasn't a very safe guy. You know, he handled the gun very casually. This was a nine millimeter. And Bob said, you know, I'm going to get you a different gun. So he claims to have bought a twenty-two. caliber target pistol for Morris. And he thought this would be more safe. Now, one thing you have to think about is a target pistol basically has a hair trigger on it. So if you're worried about a guy who's handling the gun and and just how casual he is in terms of safety, why would you give him a gun with a hair trigger? Even if it's a .22 caliber, it could hurt you and it might even kill you.
3: There was a moment during that part of the testimony that seemed to reduce the defense to kind of a clown show. They were talking about Bob's version of how the struggle with Morris over the gun happened. And I think John Lewin suggested that DeGarren and Chesnoff acted out and couldn't believe it, but they actually did it. They listened to Lewin and they got on the floor and they play-acted this whole scene, giving the whole thing an air of absurdity What was the feeling in the courtroom when that went down, Charlie?
7: Just as you might expect, it it was thought of as kind of comical. The jury was laughing about it. And, you know, whether anybody took it seriously as a reenactment, I'm, I'm not sure. But it did offer a little bit of comic relief.
3: There was also one other thing that happened that we note in our story today that was probably overlooked by casual observers of the trial. But in a moment where DeGuerin asked Durst what he told Morris Black about why he was trying to get away, what he was escaping from. Durst said he told Morris Black about Jeanine Pirro and about escaping the reinvestigation into the disappearance of his wife, Kathy. That's a huge admission by Durst because it gives him a motive for wanting to permanently silence Morris Black.
7: It does. I I mean, in the prosecution's telling of the story, Bob was worried that if he left Galveston, that Morris might go to the authorities and say, hey, that guy you've been looking for was right here.
3: Brittany, moving on to the Durst testimony about the interviews with the Jinx, what struck you particularly about what Durst had to say about his Infamous bathroom audio.
4: Being somebody who watched The Jinx when it came out and was absolutely shocked by the alleged admission at the end with the bathroom audio, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for to see what Durst's answer to that was going to be. And his explanation for that was what he was really saying was that he was afraid that people would think that he killed them all, not that he was saying that he did. If you were really afraid, is the thing that you say to yourself... (laughs) killed them all, of course? Or is the thing that you say to yourself something like, "Uh uh-oh, what are people going to think? I mean, it's just, it was crazy.
7: Well, let me just take the counterpoint there. We're not hearing the entire conversation that's going on in his head. We're hearing what it is that he's verbalizing. So I, I think he could certainly try to make the case that you're not hearing everything. You know, that what he's saying is, Oh my God, what have I done? I've made myself look guilty, like I killed them all.
3: Except, Charlie, it goes with him also saying, there it is, you're caught. Those two can't be separated from one another. I mean, they're separated in the course of time. It's not like he's saying, there it is, everybody's going to think I'm guilty. It's, there it is, I'm caught, as in my hand's in the cookie jar and somebody is looking at me with my hand in the cookie jar.
4: Charlie, I was really struck by the way that Dick DeGuerin seemed to be trying to take down Nick Chaven. You know, he's offered this testimony that was the highlight of the prosecution's case in some ways, and they seem to be trying to discredit him in a new way. I, I was wondering what you thought about that.
7: I have expected them to go after Nick. His tale is very damning, and I, I think he's ended up as arguably the single most important witness against Bob. What I found interesting, like you, is that I think they were laying the groundwork for um, impeaching Nick's testimony. So how did they do that? They mentioned that that Bob was a co-best man at Nick's wedding in 1988 in Las Vegas. But then they planted this item that I had never heard before. And that was, Bob said, that some kind of dispute broke out between Nick and uh, Susan. And that uh, Nick was Nick's father sided with him. Bob sided with Susan in this kind of dispute. And Bob said that after 1988, he and Nick were no longer as close as they had once been.
4: Yeah, and then this purported incident at Nick Chavins' wedding. Um, do you have any idea what that's about?
7: I, I had never heard this. Uh, I asked Nick about this after Bob testified, and he, he was flabbergasted. He had no idea what Bob was talking about. I asked Terry, his wife, as well. And she also was was stumped as to what Bob was talking about. But it it would appear that they seem to be teeing up the idea that maybe Nick had an ulterior motive for recounting this dinner conversation in which he said uh, Bob confessed that he killed Susan. Crazy.
3: Well... I think we can leave it there for today. On the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, we will begin our presentation of the cross-examination of Robert Durst by Deputy District Attorney John Lewin. And I think you're all going to want to tune in for that.
5: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
4: Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one and head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.